Hi, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, a weekly lectionary podcast that explores what Christian sacred texts might have to say to the work of collective liberation and white anti-racism. This podcast is a project of showing up for racial justice, and the music in our show, We Are Building Up a New World, is a live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement. This recording is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are thankful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Claire Brown, and I'm an Episcopal priest serving a parish in Athens, Tennessee, on Cherokee and Yuji lands. This week on the podcast, we are continuing in the season after Pentecost in the Gospel of Mark. Two weeks ago in the lectionary, we witnessed in Mark a strange conversation between Jesus and the scribes and his family. When we saw through his strange imagery of Satan and Beelzebul, wonder and suspicion of demonic exorcisms, and the way that Mark's gospel constructs Jesus as the protagonist in this cosmic battle, with miraculous healings, feedings, the confrontation of power, and abuse of authority in society, the action of Jesus's ministry are Mark's focus. But they carry cosmic significance in this apocalyptic mystic world of Mark's gospel. The, these chapters are a sharp reminder to me of the gulf between first century Galilee and 21st century Tennessee in terms of culture and spirituality and worldview and the ways that trying to apply these texts now can fail. I want to be tender and mindful not to diminish ancient wisdom. I want to be mindful of the ways that we're always using and interpreting this text for our own time and purposes in ways it maybe wasn't written for. There's a reality between this cosmic immediate connection in the Gospels that I can't quite get to. I can't quite wrap my head around. Like in the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples come back from their missions and Jesus says that while they were working, he saw Satan fall like lightning. Well, there's something more than a metaphor going on here. And Mark is making me wonder if I, with my postmodern ears in mind, can totally understand this fully connected cosmic physical landscape that Mark is writing and seeing from. But if I can borrow the general idea that there are good and evil things, moments or movements, forces, I guess, that take on a life of their own, they become more than what meets the eye, well, that feels very true and helpful to me. In some sense, the good version of this is what we might call sacred. Or in other New Testament writings, this is referred to in a negative way as the battle against powers and principalities, not bodies, not material realities. That allows me to think about sickness that torments body and spirit and is more than just a disease. Or how when we resist oppressive systems, even with the tiniest bits of cleverness or hope, that matters beyond the moment. The structures of material flourishing or harm have spiritual impact on all of us, 
on those who oppress, on those who benefit. Organizing language uh, of wins and targets, as Alexia Salvatierra has noted, can then be insufficient when talking about other human beings. It's just, it's what's happening here, and it's also more than that. Targets and wins are more than one person's position or actions. Systems that harm are about what they do to our bodies, but they're also about our spirits. It's all connected. There's something else going on, a deeper impact. There's more than meets the eye. And that is where we find Jesus at work. reading from Mark 4. When evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here ends the reading. When Mark puts us here on the boat with the disciples and sleeping Jesus, because of the cosmic perspective already alive and at work in this gospel we know to keep an eye out for this dynamic that there's more going on here than meets the eye this is about a boat and fear in a storm and it is about much more than a boat and fear in a storm but that evident and cosmic reality can't be so easily disentangled throughout scripture from the very beginning with the spirit hovering over the water in Genesis to the river flowing through the heavenly garden in Revelation God's power is demonstrated again and again through control or or power ability to work with the water with the sea the people of Israel throughout their history by and large weren't seafarers so being able to travel over water understand it was a sign of power And of course, for ancient agricultural people in the arid subtropics, water and rain is life. So anytime we are reading the Bible and we see water, we can almost always count on the fact that God's power is at work here. We see this in the Exodus when God parts the waters to give the people a way to freedom and washes the Pharaoh and his army away. We see it in Job when God finally responds to this poor guy and basically just says, God is mystery and power. Didn't you know about the sea monsters that God made and knows? The great love stories of God's people, the meat cutes of the patriarchs and matriarchs, all seem to happen at a well. 
where people were getting water. And this symbolism of water and power is also why John the Baptist and others, Jesus, seeking God's intervention in their oppression, wade out into the freedom waters of the Jordan, making their lives right with God and each other, asking God to make them strong and new right in the midst of this symbol of power. Anytime we're reading scripture and we see water, we can count on the fact that God's power is at work here. Up until now in Mark, Jesus has been healing in miraculous and strange ways. He's called and sent disciples. He's asked questions and been asked questions. He's dealt with accusations of being evil. He's been preaching the good news of hope and grace in tiny and unexpected places. And Mark is giving us some really excellent character development on Jesus. And now Jesus is setting out over the water in a boat with friends. Skilled local fishermen who knew the sea like the back of their hands. And here comes the storm and the waves. So we're reading in Mark. We see Jesus come to the water. And following the theme of what goes on with water in the Bible, we know God's power is at work here. But Jesus' mastery of the storm is this cosmic signifier of his divinity is surrounded by these other details of the story that I don't want us to miss or skip over. So let's consider the disciples. They've been out with Jesus healing and bearing witness to healing. They've heard Jesus preaching and they've been sent to preach. They've been listening to parables of transformation, abundance, surprise, the grace of small things that show power. And now they're crossing over the waters with him in this threshold place, this journey, this great idea that God's power is at work here in the water is where we find God with God's people, but he's just taking a nap. If you zoom out a bit from this text, the scene of the sea crossing is an interlude between Mark's stories of healing and Mark's stories of Jesus being rejected. It kind of has already unfolded a bit, and then we have this interlude, and then it ramps up. So you'll have to stay tuned for next week to see part two. (laughs) It's a literary transition. It's a geographic transition. And it's a transformative spiritual transition for his friends. And I imagine the storm really must have been one heck of a storm to have these guys scared. These fishermen's sons at the helm who grew up right here on the water. And the boat is swamped. Their anxiety's up. And they shake Jesus awake with this accusation. Don't you care? The disciples are moving from part one to part two. They're crossing the waters to the other shore where things are only going to be more intense, more fraught, more charged as Jesus levels up, teaches and heals and lives out radical love and change. They've been through a lot. More is coming and they are deeply, deeply afraid.
As I was preparing for this episode and studying this passage, I shared some of my reflections and conversation on the text with a good friend of mine, Episcopal chaplain and women's soccer coach, Kelsey Davis. And I want to attribute what's coming next to her wisdom because she pointed out to me another piece of the story at work, and that's the boat. When we're in transition, transformation, in soul and society challenging work that God's called us to do, we have to put our trust in a boat to get us where we need us to go. Our boats might be religious institutions. It might be our organizing models or the newest vocabulary of social analysis. I don't know what your boat is. (laughs) If you take a deep breath and think for a second, you'll know what your own boat is. It's the idea, the thing, the community, the methodology that you have to ride in to carry you in this work. But when things get rocky, as they always do, and the boat isn't perfect, it starts to get swamped, well, we panic. We hustle and we overwork. We scapegoat. We doubt and we look back. We accuse. And yes, I mean this spiritually and personally. And yes, I mean this strategically and organizationally. Not unlike Jesus' friends when we're in this frantic headspace during a season of voyage transition. We get overfocused on what's happening to the boat and forget about who is in the boat with us and who called us over to the new shore in the first place. As I prayerfully imagine this story, I can hear the disciples' accusation in two different ways. Almost the petty, Jesus, do you not even care? But then, of course, too, the anguished, please, wake up, don't you care? But either way, And I'll never know. (laughs) The response is the same. Jesus responds with relief to the situation, with obvious care. Yes, he cares. And with great power, calming the storm. And then he continues the conversation. Why are you afraid? Now, that seems like a weird question, yeah. Maybe the giant storm that was just threatening our lives? Well... Maybe, maybe. Having watched Jesus through the Gospels and dialogue with all different kinds of people, reading his parables, his thought-provoking questions, I reckon this was not just a sarcastic rebuke, but a real invitation. It seems a lot more on brand for him to continue the conversation. So I hear him saying, what's making you afraid? No, really. What's going on under the fear? And what's going on with your faith here? What are you trusting, holding most dear right now? Is this really about the storm? Is this really about the boat? Those of us who work toward freedom, who care about anti-racism and social justice and liberation have to interrogate those fears and interrogate our trusts all along the way. The rockiness and the uncertainty of the storm and heck, even the work of continuously trying to fix that boat 
will rob us of so much energy and so much joy. We can forget the wonder of this whole thing, that God's called us at all, that there's other good folks along for the ride to encourage each other. We can forget that we've only been asked to offer our faithfulness, not accomplish perfection. We can forget and fall into this accusing posture of activist fundamentalism that sure might plug every hole in a leaky boat, but does that at the cost of our relationships, our peace, and our vision. In this week's gospel, God expresses God's power in this refrain to the storm, peace be still. This is a gift not so much really to whatever the storms are swamping, the waves surrounding us, but I think in Mark and now, the message of peace be still is just as much to the anxious and forgetful spirits of worried disciples. Peace. Be still. Breathe. Rest. Ground your ministry, your activism, your advocacy in the quiet confidence that it is God who has called you to new shores. Peace, be still. Honor how far you've already come. By God's grace, with your community, through your teachers. These are the words that I hear as this week's call to action. It's actually a call to pause. Peace, be still. Be still so that you can celebrate, so you can honor the end of Keystone XL Pipeline, the honoring of Juneteenth, whatever local victories are unfolding around you in your work. Be still. Retrace and remember. Remember the exodus, old and recent movement victories, your own story of growth and change. Be still. Reflect and restore. Check in on that fear. Reflect on what you truly trust. Remember your journey and your call. Notice your companions on the way. Find your hope. Peace. Be still. Friends, thank you for joining me this week. It's a simple reflection on this text, but I pray that an invitation to remember who's called us, to remember that the transformation happens on the voyage, and to remember that we 
can be still <laughs> is a good medicine and offering for you this week. You can find out more about the work of Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our podcast lives on SoundCloud. You can search the word is resistance to find it. Give us a like wherever you listen to our podcast, and you can find our transcripts of episodes on the website. And finally, I want to give a big thank you to the sound editor for our podcast, Maxwell Pearl. May you know peace. May you know rest. May you remember who's in the boat and the strange and beautiful power of God over storms and through them. May you find hope for the journey ahead. And may the blessing of God be with you and remain with you always. Amen. Yeah.